0: What do you think? What's the ideal compliance function, for instance, is one of the questions. And it's completely free text. And that gives us such a wealth of insight into what people are thinking, feeling. And to be frank, I think with some of the answers we get from folks, it's almost cathartic in the download. This is Tom Fox.
1: That was Susanna Hammond. Susanna is with Thomson Reuters, and we talk about the Thomson Reuters 2022 Cost of Compliance Report. It's packed with information that you can use for your compliance program and what you can do to benchmark your program and perhaps look down the road for some of the ideas and initiatives that you can incorporate into your planning. I know you'll enjoy it. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We're going to have a quick word from our
0: sponsor and we'll be right back with Susanna Hammond. Hello, everyone. This is Tom
1: Fox, back for another episode. Today, we're in for a treat because we're going to explore the recently released Thomson Reuters cost of compliance report with Susanna Hamm. Susanna, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Well, thank you
0: very much for having me.
1: Susanna, could you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Sure.
0: By profession, I'm a chartered accountant, qualified in the UK, but by Work experience, I have been the head of compliance, the director of compliance, actually probably in more places than is rather good for me, but places like Warburg's and Caspian Securities, G Capital, that sort of thing. Most latterly, I was head of retail regulatory risk for HBOS, and then I joined a firm called Complinet, which, gosh, was probably 15 years ago, and Thomson Reuters brought that out, So since then, instead of doing compliance in the practical sense for financial services firms, I have been writing about it and talking about it and explaining it best I can to the world at large.
1: And the Cost of Compliance 2022 report, this report is always a significant event for the compliance professional in a wide variety of different types of compliance. ABC, AML, now Control and Export, Sanctions But the 2022 report is the 12th report. And I was wondering if you could remind us, how do you guys compile the information that goes into the writing of the report?
0: One very small correction: it's actually the 13th report. But what we do Ah, is we have- Lucky 13. Absolutely. What we do is we send out a survey. And this time around, we had 500-odd people come back. And that's folks from the biggest of firms, the globally significant banks, the, the GSIBs as they're called. Banks, insurers, asset managers, wealth managers, regulators, payment services, providers, fintechs, regtechs, everybody responds. And that's very much aimed at financial services, risk and compliance functionality there. And we get very good practitioner response. And that's very much what we are aiming to collect and collate and one of the things that I think we're very fortunate with this report is because we ask some very open questions normally on surveys it's which of these three apply to you thing which we have of course we have but what we also have is what do you think what's the ideal compliance function for instance is one of the questions and it's completely free text and that gives us such a wealth of insight into what people are thinking, feeling. And to be frank, I think with some of the answers we get from folks, it's almost cathartic in the download because they can tell us what they really are thinking, <clears throat> excuse me, completely anonymously, completely safely, but to contribute to a global benchmark in effect of what the industry is thinking, where, and then they can pitch where they are against their peer group.
1: I really like the part where you said it's almost cathartic because that is something that I don't think we really, I don't want to say focus on, but discuss enough in many of the reports that are released annually. But having the ability to share that information, perhaps some frustrations as well, but the way you guys are able to collate that information, you can turn that into a net positive, I think, and help show what some of the biggest challenges might be. And equally important, how do you overcome those challenges? I really appreciated you, you talking about that as well. You are one of the authors yeah. of the report. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your writing process. Is this just an extension of a term paper you wrote <laughs> or something you did in university? Or is it a different writing style? Uh,
0: it's a different writing style in the sense that we assume a level of knowledge let me put it that way this is not a, a, a report for somebody who doesn't have the first idea about risk and compliance this is a report aimed at somebody who is and we know who downloads it because obviously we like to track those sorts of things and regulators download it Policy makers download it firms themselves download it consultancies law firms It is very much aimed at those already in the industry. I mean, we are fully aware, and actually we had a a request from an American university, gosh, two weeks ago, perhaps. Please, could they have all 13 of the reports because they wanted to use those for their research. So we said, yeah, here you go, 13 reports. What we didn't give them is the underlying data because that's very much ours and we don't share that. But it's very much aimed at somebody who is a compliance officer a risk officer in a financial services firm somewhere in the world and we what we aim to do is not only give the overarching responses and collations and analytics but we break out regionally where we've got somewhere for instance the Middle East is different or the US is different or Australia is different we break that out and we know this happens compliance folks can take this information say to the board and say look We're way behind the curve on this. We need additional resources to be able to sort out X, Y, Z or indeed ABC or AML or whatever it is. So people very much use this in practice. It's not hopefully not some theoretical, slightly dull read that sends you to sleep. It's very much practical reality for people and they treat it that way.
1: And I would echo that it is not an academic focused. although obviously you do have the academic background to write. It is very practical. It's very useful. And I think it's going to help guide the discussion. The I don't want to say that this year is any more important than any other year because every year has its own challenges. But I'm a firm believer that the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine has changed things in a very dramatic way or been a uh, uh, a way to put a very large exclamation mark on trends that had been accelerating through the pandemic. And so I was wondering if I could maybe get your thoughts on that event and how you were able to incorporate really that dramatic event on into your questions and comments that you got back. And then in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in Western Europe, we've had a very much large increase, obviously, in regulations around Russian companies and doing business in Russia.
0: Yeah, the point to make is that actually the survey closed just before, almost days before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But I think the point, and it really is a serious point to make, there were a huge number of issues for risk and compliance functions before we even had the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the Russian invasion of Ukraine will not have made any of those issues go away. They will only have got worse because you will have that strain on the resources, you will have that people's focus going on. Oh, my goodness, we have all of these sanctions now to comply with. But we also have all of these rule books, and all of the regulatory change that's happening, that still all has to happen. And the forbearance that we saw through much of the pandemic, I'm not saying that's completely gone, but it is unwinding in most of the jurisdictions. So firms are very much expected to be able to do all of the business as usual. And that was no mean trick, even when we already were just at normal, in inverted commas. On top of that, you have got to not only comply with all of those sanctions for Ukraine, but for me, the real challenge around that is evidencing compliance with the sanctions around Ukraine. It's all very well to say, oh, we've stopped doing business here and we're doing that. And we've reported the other. Well, terrific. Can you evidence all of that robustly and consistently? Can you prove that? That, I think, is where the firms are going to really find the pinch point, because the nuances and the due diligence, the enhanced due diligence, and the how far down your supply chain do you go? How much do you go back to a customer who... 20 years ago, perhaps, did business in Russia. There are some real nuances in there, and it is absolutely not a tick-box exercise. There are some sanctions that are, let me be very clear. These are not. And yes, firms firms need to take it very seriously because if you don't have levels of compliance in place and the skilled resources, I would suggest, in-house... You are storing up real issues for tomorrow.
1: For the last 15 years, I have said the following every time I spoke. The three most important things in any compliance program and any discipline are the document. And so I'm extraordinarily thrilled <laughs> for you to say that today. great <laughs> minds like, no, no, no. Absolutely right. And it's that struggle to, to do that in areas that perhaps we didn't. And you're a spot on the supply chain or the vendor, the supplier, or even the agent on the sales side you've been working with for literally 20 years, because something has changed. The world changed, you've changed, they've changed. It's so significant for me to hear you continually or talk about that so that we continually remind people. If I could maybe turn now to some of the specific findings you noted in the report, and maybe start with what were the areas of the greatest need for compliance functionality that you were able to identify?
0: I think there are several aspects to this, but I think that's perhaps the best way to answer your question is where we asked where is more compliance involvement needed? So you've got your core competency compliance skills, you build a monitoring programme, report on it, all of those sorts of things. But there were a whole series of areas and issues where It was highlighted that the compliance function itself was saying, actually, we need to be more involved in. And that was things like cyber resilience. And I suspect that's not necessarily a huge surprise given remote and hybrid working, digital transformation, all that sort of thing. Even a few years ago, I think cyber would have been, oh, that's what the IT function does. I mean, that's their business. That's not us. But I think now it is compliance is understanding that they need to be involved. They need to know what good looks like there. Another area, and I suspect we'll talk about culture a bit more because there's always culture to talk about. It's the implementation and the demonstration of a compliant culture. What does that actually look like? What does good and better compliant culture look like? And we're back to how would you evidence that? How do you document what good looks like in terms of culture? That perhaps is a whole different question, but that is certainly on compliance's mind. I think another one is post-pandemic review. There are a lot of firms in the loop at the moment saying, these are things that went well during the pandemic. These are the things that didn't perhaps go so well. What do we want to keep? What do we need to refine? What do we need to actually look at quite closely? I think... Also, perhaps as a ramification of the pandemic, is where are we on our governance arrangements now? Because so many firms changed so quickly at the start of the pandemic when the lockdowns just hit like a hammer. Governance arrangements were flexed on the spot, turns on a sixpence, to use the English phrase. It's where are they now? Do they still work? Are they still effective? One very big firm I can think of took out three layers of corporate governance at one fell swoop and just went, don't need those. We have to do it this way now. So does that still work in today's world? And then the last one where I think there's a lot more of the skill sets needed around is the use and possibly abuse in, in, in the not used very well sense of that word, fintech and regtech solutions. Are they actually delivering what they say on the tin? Do we know they're delivering? What assumptions are inherent in there? So I think even in that small list, and that's what only five things, there's a huge amount of work for compliance functions to do if those are the sorts of things that they think they need a bit more involvement in.
1: So what were some of the key challenges that were identified, not 2015 or 2030 down the road, but maybe in the next 12 months that you were able to articulate?
0: Well, the really big one, and this one has pretty much been the one for a number of years, is the volume and pace of regulatory change. And that would, of course, incorporate the sanctions we've been talking about already. And this year, the subtitle of this particular year's report is competing priorities. And this is where these priorities start to compete. You've got all of that going on, but we are just beginning to get the sense that budget and resources are starting to be constrained. Now, I'm not suggesting budgets are being cut because that's not what we're being told. But what we're seeing is that budgets aren't likely to grow as much as the remit of the compliance function itself is. So you've got the compliance function being asked to do more and more and the budget is only growing a little bit. And that's compounded by, oh, my goodness, we need an awful lot more skilled resources. So those never come cheap, skilled resources. And then you've got, in addition to things like the sheer availability of those skilled resources, when you've got to remember that it's not just the firms themselves that are looking for those. So if we say think about ESG as a concept, which is having such an uneven approach around the world, For firms to be able to navigate that, you need resources that are skilled in ESG. But so do the regulators, so do the policymakers, so does government, so does pretty much everybody. So you're competing very hard, and by definition, that puts the price tag up. So firms need to compete or balance those priorities to be able to progress some of these issues. But the one absolute clear winner the sheer volume still of regulatory change.
1: You mentioned a little bit earlier, Colt, and I'm going to preface this question by, in the United States, the regulators in the form of the U.S. Department of Justice, last October, the number two at the Department of Justice is called the Deputy Attorney General, and that is a woman named Lisa Monaco. In a speech she made, she said that the Department of Justice would start assessing corporate culture as part of their package of investigations under white-collar crime, mm-hmm. specifically including anti-corruption laws, the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. This was the first time that the Department of Justice had articulated they would assess culture. I think everyone has always known culture is important. But now we have the regulators struggling, I think, to assess culture. That, of course, means that, as you said, you have to implement a culture of compliance. You have to monitor that culture of compliance. You have to upgrade that culture of compliance. and you have to document Mm -hmm. all of that. So I was wondering if we might use that very long-winded question to introduce the topic of culture. What did you see in this report? And did we able to tease out any hints as to how compliance professionals might begin either to address this issue or even think through the problem and begin to address the issue?
0: I think there's, there are several ways we came at this with, with the report. First thing is to say that culture and indeed conduct risk, which you could wrap into it, it's not new regulatory-wise, but the regulators themselves have been figuring out how to deal with it. And we've got, as you say, the DOJ in the States with their statements now. For instance, here in the UK, Prudential Regulation Authority... Has said that if it finds that a bank, say, has a deficient culture, it will increase its capital requirements, which is really a very strong incentive. Of course, no, one, it would be in extremis anyone would know about that because the bank would not, Bank of England would not disclose that fact. But that fact remains, and there are other regulators around the world where, if you like, the behaviour and the culture at the senior management level is a very serious regulatory focus. There's, for instance, in Dubai Financial Services Authority has recently banned a chief executive for basically being incompetent. The regulator was enormously clear that no rules have been broken, but this chap's decision-making and his behaviour was not culturally appropriate, therefore you're gone. So there are definitely uneven approaches to this. And one of the ways we've tried to get to how firms are able to evidence compliance culture or culture and conduct risk in action is we ask have you in the last year discarded a potentially profitable business proposition because of culture and conduct risk concerns and about a third of people come back and say yes actually we have discarded something that would have made us a lot of money but culturally conduct wise it wasn't great Now, there are some quite interesting regional variations on that. In continental Europe, half of our respondents said, actually, yes, we've walked away from something. But in the US, it's only a quarter. We'll have to see whether the DOJ's statements drive that number up a little bit. But it's how you get to how firms are tackling it, introducing it, reinforcing it, I suppose, is also the way So there are things around corporate governance, there are things around training, tone from the top, mood in the middle, that sort of thing. But one of the key elements in the culture of space is how does the board have appropriate levels of line of sight to what's actually happening at the front end? And of course, that's not just a culture concern. But it is a key measurement of culture. Do they actually know what's happening in the front end? And would they be happy if they did know? Are they seeing it? Can they see it? What information do they have? One of the things that is so difficult to capture with all of this is the context around it. And we're back to the documentation point because context is so important. And if you've got, I don't know, 20 complaints a week you could either be ecstatic or horrified, depending on the context around that. On the ecstatic side, 20 complaints. You've captured everyone, resolved everyone, done the root cause analysis and sorted out the underlying problems and turned all of those complainants into complete advocates for your business. Entirely the same area, perhaps, 20 complaints. You could think, well, actually, we've missed half of them. It's shown that none of our processes work and it's all a complete shambles. But if all the number you reported to the board was 20, how on earth would they know which end of the spectrum it was at? So it's a real challenge for compliance to be able to put meaningful context around, say, a number 20 so that the board has the insight it needs into how exactly and precisely, as possible, culture is actually working in the firm. I would suggest that's no small undertaking.
1: If I took what you just said and I timed it over the past three and a half minutes, and changed the word culture to ESG, it strikes me that you have described a very or an accurate description of an up and running ESG program. If you find that to be a fair assessment, are 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 you or are you having discussions either internally at Thompson Reuters or even with your clients or customers about this intersection of culture and compliance and Perhaps there's a way to look at this in a much more holistic approach rather than saying, here's my ESG report today and tomorrow. Here's my culture report.
0: Very much so. We've already done one special report on ESG. And actually, as it happens, we are just writing one at the moment. And it is very much about you. it's not a tick box exercise, ESG. It has to be done holistically and it has to stay under constant review and focus. today is good shall we say, or at least better approach to ESG, maybe something really very different tomorrow. What we're already seeing are the challenges around greenwashing and some of the fines, actually particularly out of the US on that. We're also seeing the advertising standards authorities, that's the particular regulator in the UK, being very clear, do not make wild promises about your green credentials when you can't actually back them up. And that's not just financial services firms, that's all sorts of firms. But they are very clear. And exactly that, the holistic whole firm approach, that's compliance culture by another name. You've got to do it in on the biggest landscape or else something is going to trip you up. You don't get to do this. Oh, oh we'll just do it in this little dark corner over here because the re- it doesn't actually matter for the rest of the facts. would be utterly self-defeating, both in compliance culture terms and in DDSG terms.
1: The down the road... I often try to ask or think about where we might be, and I used to say 2025, but that's two and a half years from now. So now I say 2030, and I preface that with 2030 is almost mid-century. So with that scary phrase, mid-century, where do you see compliance down the road? And I think many of the things you've already talked about will continue to be challenges such as increase in regulation, such as compliance being asked to do more, such as a needed expertise in a wider variety of areas while competing with other areas for a similar expertise. But do did this report or do you see, rather, things that we in the profession need to begin to discuss and think about, for a little bit longer down the road and not just the next 12 months.
0: Yes, one of my questions, and I have to confess it's one of my favorite questions, is we ask people with one of those free text boxes, what's your ideal vision of the future compliance function? And we just let them go for it. And when you distill those answers down, and we don't give a timescale on that, so it very much is long-term future. The ideal future, the number one that came out of there, was data and technology-driven. Because... And I do think that's because the only way risk and compliance functions are going to be able to just deal with the sheer spectrum, the myriad risks and realities you're dealing with, is if you have got truly business-specific, tailored technology that delivers for you and manages, for instance, the regulatory change functionality manages your document retention, your document management? Do you know where everything is? Does the data governance for you? Your data is absolutely critical. And to come back to the ESG point again, your data requirements around ESG are going to require substantial investment. Anybody who is going to be dealing with anything to do with the EU, UK, Australia, New Zealand, most parts of Asia now, the US is taking a slightly different tack just at the moment, the data requirements around how you have a transition plan, a roadmap, path to net zero, that's an awful lot of data points for an awful lot of firms. So data and technology driven future compliance function, and that needs investment, and that needs skills. Other things compliance people told us was fully integrated throughout the business. So none of this separation of, well, compliance is over here, the rest of the business is over there. Absolutely not. Compliance is utterly integrated throughout. You won't be surprised, greater skill, greater emphasis on skill skills with a good dollop of experience thrown in, because the practical experience of how you apply those skills is perhaps almost as important as the skills themselves in terms of if you've got technical knowledge on cyber or cryptos or whatever it is, terrific. How do you actually apply those in practice in a firm? That I think is going to be a critical thing. And then, and this one may be, I suspect, a slightly bitter experience for a few folks to be seen as a strategic business partner, the risk and compliance function, rather than somebody who tells them they can't do something. So there's quite a lot for compliance to work towards, but you can see that is a very sensible direction of travel. And I can't really think that those areas or issues are likely to change very much because the shape, for instance, of the data and the technology requirements will evolve. But you're always going to need data and technology requirements. So I think kudos to our respondents. They came back with some very clear thinking as to how they would like their future to be.
1: One issue in the United States that has (coughs) garnered a lot of debate is CCO, Chief Compliance Officer, personal or individual Mm -hmm. liability. It's an ongoing discussion amongst the regulators, obviously within the compliance community as well. And I was wondering if that concern you saw on a much more broader global basis as well. And if so, what were some of the comments or concerns shared with you guys?
0: Yes, I think certainly the New York City Bar Association's extremely articulate statements around CCOs either leaving or never joining, I think, should really be a very strong warning shot in the US. Compliance officers similarly liable elsewhere? The blunt answer is yes, because there are very specific senior manager regimes around the world. Here in the UK, we have SMCR, that's Senior Management Certification Regime. Hong Kong has Manager in Charge. Australia has bare banking executive accountability regime. Singapore's got a regime that's coming into force. Ireland is mod- modelling its new regime on SMCR. And those are very much built on responsibility maps. So all senior managers, compliance officers included, have... Pr- I was going to say prescribed responsibilities that are documented and allocated so that if X goes wrong, the regulator has absolute line of sight. This particular senior manager was responsible for that area. Now, that doesn't mean you're holding the compliance officer responsible for everything, which may well be the danger that's perceived in the US, but a senior manager will be held responsible for a compliance breach or a compliance failure. And that is, in theory, should focus people's minds very much on making sure that there isn't a breach or that if there is one, you find it yourself and you remediate it and make sure the usual root cause analysis, make sure there's no customer harm, all of that sort of thing. Um, Firms are doing really quite a lot of stuff, for want of a better word, to make sure that they are mitigating their own employee liability but not their accountability. So we are talking about things like regulatory training programmes, much more technology going into things, increased use of attestations which I think is an interesting one because you could be hoisted by your own petard if you're not careful there, remote monitoring which also proves people are compliant as well as potentially proving they are not compliant the one that, and we had a Compliance Clarified podcast on this, were, well, which we discussed quite a lot of this, was the requirement to have an individual and personal archive of evidence. You see, we're back to documentation already on this. And it's individuals should maintain their own archive of how they have been compliant. And I would suggest that applies to compliance officers just as much as any other senior manager. But that's a really interesting concept that you as an individual senior manager have something that's succinct and potentially separate. Of course, there are issues if you've left the firm and it's proprietary information or whatever. But I think that's a really interesting idea as to how to protect yourself as an individual vis-a-vis how compliance in the wider sense protects the firm itself from enforcement.
1: Susanna, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I was wondering if our listeners had any questions on any of the things we've discussed, the cost of compliance report, or perhaps had a question for you, what would be the best way for them to find out more information?
0: For me personally, do find me on LinkedIn. I post relatively regularly on there. For the Compliance Clarified podcast, where we chat about this sort of stuff in a bit more detail, I'll put those in the show notes. And the cost of compliance report itself, we can put that link in there. And the particular part of Thomson Reuters I'm from is Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence, so I can drop that link in too. Suzanne,
1: I really appreciate you taking the time to visit with me. I also want to thank you and your colleagues for producing this report. It's always something that is important and significant and lots of information to unpack. I hope our listeners will, I'm going to link to the report in the show notes. I hope they'll take the opportunity to download the report. And I greatly hope we can continue this conversation.
0: Thanks very much. Thank you for having me.
1: This is Tom Fox again. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I'd like to tell you about a great new podcast series on the award-winning compliance podcast network, The Corruption Files, where with Hughes Hubbard partner, Mike DeBernardis, we take a look at some of the most significant FCPA and anti-corruption enforcement actions over the past 15 years in this modern era of FCPA and anti-corruption enforcement. I know you'll enjoy this series, and I hope you'll check it out, The Corruption Files, on the Compliance Podcast Network, Megaphone, iTunes, or wherever you listen to great podcasts.